Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome back to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called Underestimated, and it is covering shows that either had mild success or no success at all when they first premiered on Broadway, but found uh, since, wait, that's that's not English, but have since found uh, a long and healthy life after the fact. I am your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a Broadway gent. You might know his shows, Patty Issues or Bad With Money. You might have seen his writing in Out or Backstage or Vulture, or you might see him at Club Cummings with Daniel Nolan doing cast-offs. Please welcome to the pod, Ben Rimmelauer. Hi, Ben. I'm so happy to be here with you, Matt. We're so happy to have you. How are you doing on this day, on this Sunday? I'm, I'm doing great. The sun is shining. It's May, for God's sake. It's the lusty month of fucking May. I'm looking at your apartment right now, and you really do live up to your reputation. There's nothing but Patty behind you. I mean, this room is all, the only exception to Patty in this room is Leslie Kritzer as Patty, but this room is 100% Patty. I found out, so in my research of you, I didn't know that you uh, directed and, and created the Leslie Kritzer is Patty Lapone at Le Mouche show? I knew about that show in high school. I only, the only reason I knew about Le Mouche was because of that show. Thank you. So you yes. really that's uh, you know we the album was a result of that. I mean nobody knew it before then. Yeah, a really uh, very underground sort of thing. And I mean, just being a theater nerd in high school, like that whole thing was you know that was considered sort of cult status for a lot of us. And so then. To not only know about that, but then know about Lemouche. So thank you for the good work you do. You really are, you've been teaching the children for years now. Well, you know, my history with Lemouche actually dates back to Pal Joey. Um, oh, with Pal Joey? But, not familiar. Yeah, yeah, that. <laughs> I, I guess that's as good a moment as any to introduce the show we're talking about. Ben, what show are we talking about today? Spoiler alert, Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> God fucking damn it. Uh, we are talking about pal joey so your connection to lamouche is from pal joey so tell us that because then you can also tell me about your connection to pal joey yes well it all goes together i was a uh well when i was a senior in high school patty lupone well the summer before my senior year uh i was obsessed with patty my whole life mm-hmm. and uh summer before my senior year she was opening in sunset boulevard in london and i wanted my parents to let me use my bar mitzvah money to go to London. And they said, ah, you'll see her on Broadway. We all know how that worked out. Um, thank you, Elena. We all know how <laughs> that turned you. out. Yeah, I got some more Pal Joey connection for you. But um, so I, uh, I did get to see it and I was heartbroken. I mean, really, I think, you know, up there with like coming out of the closet, like Patty's firing from Sunset Boulevard was the great trauma of my uh, high school years. Mm. And um, uh, then I was a freshman in college and 
Patty, uh, Glenn Close was getting ready to open in Sunset uh, in New York, and I was so sad about it. And we had come, I, I was, I'm from LA, but uh, my family was here, and um, like my extended family. And I, I went to Berkeley in San Francisco, and for spring break my freshman year, that's uh, like March, April of 95, mm-hmm. my family came to New York for spring break. I was flying back separately. They were all going back to LA. I was going back to San Francisco. And at the airport, they offered me a uh, free ticket if I uh, got bumped, you know, to like a later flight that night or whatever. So it's not like I was going to go to class anyway. I said, sure. And um, I uh, was waiting at the airport and I got a New York Times and the cover of the art section said that Patti LuPone is going to make her return to the American stage in Pal Joey at City Center Encores. And I didn't know Pal Joey from, you know, <laughs> Joe on the street. What is, what's the thing from the presidential debates? I can't remember now. Carpenter Joe or plumber? Who? What? Joe the plumber? Is that the thing? Oh, Joe, yeah. Joe the plumber. I, think yeah, I didn't know from Joe the plumber. But um, so I immediately cashed in my uh, certificate to come back. And uh, of course, that was like a life-changing experience. And one of the things I did, though, when I came back to New York six weeks later to see Pal Joey was... Um, I went to uh, the Triton Gallery to just back when it was still on 45th Street with a storefront. Um, mm. And I was like, you know, just wanting to buy everything Patty Lupone that they had. And uh, they had this, I, you can't, I don't think you can see it. Uh, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because your listeners won't see it. But I, they had this fabulous poster that I have on, on the other wall in this room uh, of this like cartoon image of Patti LuPone in a tuxedo. And it was a great big poster. And it said, Saturdays at midnight following her performance in Evita. I mean, that was like what the the like date and time info was. Hmm. And I was like, just fucking gobsmacked. I mean, the just the fact that a poster would say following her performance in Evita, the fact that the show was at midnight, I was absolutely, cause I didn't know anything about anything. I mean, this was just all mind blowing to me. I also that day went to, for the first time to the Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library, uh, thinking I was gonna be like, you know, two tickets to the Terrence and Phillip movie, please. And <laughs> just put on Patti LaPone and Evita. And I mean, I was all prepared with my lie that I was like directing it and stuff, you know, but they didn't, of course. They're like, no, we have a really shitty video of like Valerie Perry, you know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, it was Valerie Perry or Lonnie Ackerman? I, I think it's Lonnie Ackerman. No, it's am I, it's either Lonnie Ackerman or Florence Lacey because it's the towards the end of the Broadway run. Yeah, no, it's 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 um it's Lonnie Ackerman. It's Lonnie Ackerman. Right. Um, right, Valerie didn't even do it in New York, but um, she did Chicago, uh, right? Yeah. Um, look and, at us gays. We are so gay, Ben. I mean, I regularly one of my favorite things they recently added to IBDB is the actual dates that the replacement of Vita's went in and mm-hmm. out on Broadway and on tour. And I'm just obsessed with that whole thing. I, I oh, like. yeah. Anyway, uh, so I couldn't watch Evita. I mean, there was no point in watching Lonnie Ackerman just suck her way through that show. Um, all say, tea, how, you re- all say how you really feel. But then um, I went to the like uh, to get the press file on Patti LuPone. Mm-hmm. And there were these terrible reviews of her act at Les Mouches. So I was learning about it. Um, and that was the beginning of my my uh, quest for the Holy Grail that finally ended up in yeah. Wesley and then the album. I I mean, obviously Patty's going to come up in this episode as we talk about Paljo. And I love that like she's basically taking up so much of the first part of this. I did talk about this in the Evita episode. Yes, I, I recall listening to that episode. Oh, you recall listening to that episode? Uh, 
Patty does have, and Sunset Boulevard too, she does kind of have a misremembrance of her of her reviews of Evita. The show was sort of dismissed by American critics, but she and Mandy were very much singled out as like, they do good work. The yeah. shows, we don't like the show. But no. she remembers it as being like, I was mostly dismissed. Like, you really were. And like, the Times even says, like, you sing this really well. Um, yeah, there was a great, rev- was it Clive Barnes or somebody that said she she purrs like Piaf and belts like Merman and she has a rattlesnake like vitality. I really- The rattlesnake was the times. The the rattlesnake talked about her movement and like that ice runs through her veins. And I think Barnes was the one who's called her Merman and Piaf in one, yeah. I just Um, completed it because it's also- Yeah, and Barnes even was like, she's an improvement on page and everything. Like it's- got good reviews. Yeah, I mean- But but where she got bad reviews and I was surprised was her Les Mouches uh uh, concert and terry klausner the one who she claims was nipping at her heels was also doing a concert uh cabaret around the same time and the times went to see that and they're like well i haven't seen her in avita but just from watching the cabaret act i might prefer her to avita like jesus christ well you know it's funny terry patty for all that you read patty's book and you think about them as like mortal enemies but on all like the like actual like live tapes from the different nights at Les Mouches. Terry was at Patty's opening at Les Mouches. Like mm-hmm. Patty called her out and they were, it seemed all like chummy. Um, yeah. I, I, you, you know Patty better than I do. I can really only go off of what I've read and what I've seen, but it does sort of feel like she's remembering the way we all humans do. She's probably more channeling the constant fear she had at the time of doing Evita and anyone in that circle that basically wasn't Mandy. Yeah. Is like sucked into that like void of, um, paranoia uh yeah you know maybe she was like a bigger like cunt to terry like later in the run i mean it's possible because lemouche was kind of not early but patty was in the show for a long time yeah but um but the in patty's defense and her memory's defense about the reviews she did get really trashed in san francisco and la yeah broadway and and that was when the rumors were swirling and the gossip items that you know they were bringing in elaine page or that the woman just died actually bonnie shown or something she was like a replacement in like side by side by sondheim and how mm-hmm. prince like loved her and she almost got the part instead of elaine in london i think she's american though mm-hmm. it was american but then i i, I don't know i'm not sure why that yeah was. is she there i don't know if it was bonnie there's there's an actress who had gone through the ringer for Vita like multiple times like would always get so close basically be told she had it and then never get it um, Patty Buckley. <laughs> oh, really? No, I don't know. I, I not, they must have auditioned, but I don't, I've never had that confirmed. Maybe. Was she doing Eight is Enough at the time? Was that maybe keeping her yeah, away? Maybe. I don't know if she had joined that show yet then, but I don't know. I also feel like she would have maybe left it for Avita, but I'm not sure. Maybe. I, I the, also, that Avita, who was really up for it, who wasn't, I don't think anyone will ever know. The the articles of who was quote unquote auditioning, who was being considered are just so wild. They're like, I don't believe for a second Chara went into that audition room. I don't believe for a second Raquel Welch attempted a single note of that score in front of Hal Prince. But it was to get publicity. So yes. who's to say? Patty Lapone aside, she did do pal joey at city center encores which is the goddamn show we're fucking talking about today <laughs> um so did you see it at encores with patty yes i saw okay. it at encores with patty at least twice maybe three. Mm-hmm. i'm not sure but definitely on that and, an evening and you enjoyed it very much it was the most i mean i've seen so many shows and certainly i've seen better shows than pal joey um and i've seen patty and you know all 
everything she's done since the early 90s um mm. except Sunset Boulevard um but um uh, I've never seen anyone have, not even Bet and Dolly, have I seen that kind of audience reaction. I mean, not, you know, I mean, Patty was really great in it, but it wasn't even, you know, it was just about the audience, you know, and an Encore's audience anyway, especially in that instance, is a specific audience. Yeah. And it was just as a, as a, as a unit, we were just embracing her. And I mean, just the ovations, uh, her entrance applause, I mean, was the craziest thing I ever saw in my life. But just the whole show, it was like we were every single line. I remember so well, like the book of Pal Joey, just Patty's line readings and just the way the whole audience, you know, that gay guy in the audience that's like, ha ha, like after everything the diva says, mm-hmm. it was, you know, 2200, whatever the seating capacity at City Center is. We were all that gay guy for those performances. And mm-hmm. it was really something. Yeah, it, it was, she talks about it uh, as well in I think Nothing Like a Dame. It was very much an audience saying, welcome back. We support you. We love you. You know, you're safe here. And cool. and that's, I mean, it's really lovely when an audience can give that to a performer and when it's, you know, richly deserved and it doesn't just feel indulgent. Like that was a moment that was honest and real. I have never seen Pal Joey on stage. My connection to the show is kind of vague and not real. I, as a kid, was so into Gene Kelly. I loved Singing in the Rain, An American in Paris. I would, I had a VHS of That's Dancing, which was a uh, cast off of that the That's Entertainment series, which is also how I got into the Red Shoes. They had like a ninety second clip of that with uh, Mikhail Bershnikov introduced, and I was like, I want to watch that movie, and so would watch all the Gene Kelly clips on there, Singing in the Rain, all that. And so I think it was third grade, third or fourth grade, we each had to do a, uh, a report on someone who, you know, we admired and, you know, some, a lot of people did like, you know, true, like, you know, civil rights activists and things like that. I'm like, I'm doing Gene Kelly because I like the movies he's in. And that's how I learned about Pal Joey was reading in his uh, biography, which I think I still have on my shelf here about sort of his journey with that show and how that kind of launched his career and got him into Hollywood and all that stuff. And I'm like, what is this pal Joey? And then I also have a theater book that my great grandfather left me when he died. That was the first one I ever considered like my first theater history book that has, you know, a little slip on pal Joey. And it's a photo of him and Vivian Siegel doing the Joey looks into the future ballet. And I'm like, what is this show? And I was always told like Oklahoma had sort of the first dream ballet. I was like, are we, sleeping on pal joey is this pal joey erasure so i would always kind of learn more about it peripherally i never sought out a script or cast album and then the first two songs i ever heard were bewitched i think sung by patty and then elaine stritch doing zip for her one woman show elaine stritch at liberty and so i've always just sort of known the basic plot or premise of the show but never the details of it and then i've learned more about the score since so actually this episode today is the first time I've ever read through the script, listened to the whole score in one sitting, and then watched that bootleg of the 2008 revival, which, you know, makes a lot of changes, but still tries to, like, be pal Joey. Uh, and so, yeah, I've learned, I've learned <laughs> a lot. Which is more than you can say for the movie version. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I um, I've, I decided not to watch the movie version in full because I will be doing that eventually with my rankings and I want to be fresh for that ranking when I get to the 50s but also I know that it's not 
at all faithful whatsoever, but I did watch certain clips of it. And I watched the like introduction to Zip, which they have Rita Hayworth do. And it was like, oh, Vera is now a former stripper, like a Gypsy Rose Lee-esque woman. That's a choice. Um, And like combining Gladys and Linda into one role, but like, she's still Linda. She just has the occupation of Gladys. So, like, that's a weird thing to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll get into all of that. But yeah, so uh, as we talk about it today, the listeners will come to realize that uh, there are going to be moments where I'm, it's going to sound like I'm talking out of my ass because I am. Ben, in a nutshell, I just threw my pen. What is Pal Joey about? Wow. Um, it is about a low class, fast talking, womanizing nightclub uh, MC performer, uh, Jim Caruso. No, just kidding. Um, uh, uh, it's the Joey. story of Jim Caruso. Um, yes, <laughs> Jim, Jim probably played it at some point um, at, with Liza. And um, I would pay to uh, fucking see that. Hell the fuck yes. Um, and uh, so Joey's in the Chicago area and uh, it's based on these um, John O'Hara stories from The New Yorker, I guess, that he made into a novella. The addition from the stories to the musical, which John O'Hara also wrote the book for with the Rogers and Hart score, mm-hmm. uh, is the character of Vera Simpson, who's a um, you know middle-aged society lady and uh, she's got some rich husband somewhere, but she falls in love or she has an affair with Joey and puts him up in an apartment and buys him a club. Meanwhile, he's stringing along an ingenue and um, it's sort of the story of their relationship until his misbehavior gets to be too much that she's no longer bewitched. And um, she calls in a favor from the cops or whatever and gets him. Yeah, the comptroller, not the comptroller, the commissioner. Yeah, yeah, big, big ticket. And uh, has him like, you know, strung out of town. It's, I guess it was very, it's certainly, I mean, I like the thing, it's along the lines of what you said, in the piece you sent me from, the Paris Paris letter Paris review Paris review Paris letters of play right um, <laughs> but, uh, from the Paris review uh, that it it that it is sort of uh, even though it's Rogers and Hart it's almost like a precursor to Rogers and Hammerstein um, mm-hmm. in the um, maybe more dram- I don't know if it's dramatic heft but you know it's less just ridiculous uh, in the way that the songs become part of the story and all that than the other shows. And um, although compared to Rodgers and Hammerstein, it's so it's so sophisticated and urban, metropolitan, mm. you know, cosmopolitan, you know, and because it's in the nightclub world, it has all that fun stuff. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. I mean, I will say reading <laughs> no, the script. Please, please correct. <laughs> no, this is no. I, you, I mean, you're right about the plot and then everyone who worked on it and all that stuff. That's all great. I'll we'll get into uh, opinions on the show as we sort of dissected a little bit more i'll give uh listeners a little background on how we got ourselves some pal joey and ben feel free to chime in at any point because i've had uh some people give feedback saying i don't love when you just go on a monologue about the background i like it as more conversation i'm like i do my darndest i try to go through it as fast as i can and get people to talk but sometimes i just talk for 20 minutes uh but this is a pretty short history pal joey is based on the novella by john o'hara which is really just a collection of his short stories that he wrote for the new yorker and they are a series of letters from the character of joey who is very much uh, an unreliable narrator maybe one of the first american instances of the american of the unreliable narrator in literature and they're all, you know, letters for, to- Just for the, the morons like me, will you give some other examples of great unreliable narrators in American uh, literature or, or or film or theater? Uh, well, my, I think the ultimate 
example of the unreliable narrator in literature, and it's not American, but it's uh, Humbert Humbert in Lolita, because anyone who is familiar with the basic premise of Lolita, it's about a pedophile. But every, people go on and they try to make jokes of like, it's so uncomfortable and weird. I'm like, that's kind of the point. In fact, no, that kind of that is the point. The book is written from his perspective. It's sort of like a diary confession while he's in prison re- uh, relating his story. And he's this gorgeous writer. Like he writes these beautiful prose and he tells you everything from his perspective. And because of it, you have to parse through like what the actual truth is. So there's a moment when he's like, yeah, he's like, and Lolita was acting really weird all of a sudden. I'm like, well, you know, her mom did die and you took her on the lamb and you started having sex with her at the age of 13. So maybe that had something to do with it. And that's sort of the point of the book. So he's truly the most unreliable narrator in literature. Film, I mean, I don't know. Uh, Kevin Spacey and usual suspects. He's just like talking complete shit the whole movie. And then you find out in the last five minutes that it was all shit. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's someone who, for if you don't know what an unreliable narrator is, it's essentially someone who will always talk to the audience that they always come off well and it's not always going to be the truth. There's what they say, and then the truth is usually somewhere hidden underneath it. So you have to kind of know that, uh, which is always hard to do because you implicitly want to believe the narrator of your story that you're watching because they're the only information we're getting uh, from the whole thing. So it requires some intellect and skill, which not everyone has been, which I found out pretty recently. <laughs> not, every, <laughs> not everyone is intellectual or skilled. Yeah, like yesterday. I found out yesterday. I'm so sorry for your loss. <laughs> Thank you so much. My innocence is gone. Uh, the short stories, though, they became about, so like John O'Hara, was an alcoholic and he would go on these benders all the time instead of working and he promised his wife one night he's like i'm going to philadelphia i'm going to check into a hotel and i will not leave until i write this short story that i owe the new yorker and he doesn't even make it to the train station he checks into like a hotel in new york with a friend drinks the weekend away wakes up monday morning is like god damn i'm the worst person i know and he goes that can't be true i'm sure there's someone worse and he's like well who would be worse than me he's like i don't know maybe an mc of a nightclub or something and then he starts thinking of character joey and ends up writing the very first short story that day and sends it to the new yorker and it becomes a huge hit and i believe yeah beginning of uh, end of 1939 he approaches richard rogers who's working on too many girls with lauren's heart at that point saying i think my pal joey stories would be a really good musical comedy would love to work with you guys on this and what dick roger says is oh that'll be great larry loves disreputable characters yeah he's like he loves writing for shitty people and the idea that they had for it was so john o'hara was like i want to make this realistic i want the characters to talk the way they would in life and to sing they would the way they would talk and larry hart's like i want to write the first new york sophisticate musical Mm. uh and so there was sort of a a mixture of the two there. And it took about a year for the show to finally get put on, which is pretty long for 1940 when it did get up. We think of a year as like, that's pretty fast turnaround. But that was like at a time where, you know, you were writing shows every couple of months. So yeah, yeah, it it took about a year because John O'Hara, once again, alcoholic that he was, but like took a year to write the book. And uh, Hart and Rogers uh, took a while with the score as well because R- Richard Rogers was getting into the mode of his career. He's like, I want to be diligent. I want to work hard. I want to work well. And he had these uh, hard and fast rules that he really wanted to apply to musical theater writing, which we'll get to as sort of the legacy of the show and his work with uh, Oscar Hammerstein. And Lawrence Hart was very, 
was a self-hating homosexual with low self-esteem, fragile ego. He was short. He considered himself unattractive. So he just, everything pissed him off, made him break down, would throw him to bed with depression and like a bottle of, you know, scotch. And so it took him forever to write lyrics. And Rogers would like hound him. He's like, I wrote you a melody. I need a lyric. And Hart's like, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then finally would write him lyrics in, in uh, 12 hours and they'd be perfect. Uh, they get Gene Kelly as the role of Joey. They write Vera Simpson for Vivian Siegel, who is a close friend of Lorenz Hart. George Abbott directs it. They go out of town in Philadelphia and basically Lorenz Hart and John O'Hara are MIA the entire out of town tryout because they're just drinking all the time. And George Abbott's like, fuck it. I'll just write. I'll rewrite the book scenes, which made the show less gritty than they wanted, but it allowed it to sort of make a bit more sense, I guess, because there are, there's no real plot to the pal joey letters it's just you know joey does this joey does that and they tried to create this plot for the show that doesn't really totally work it's why people keep trying to rewrite the book ever since uh but they do come to broadway the barrymore theater they open they get some pretty good reviews but the new york times very famously says how can you draw sweet water from a foul well uh basically saying you know it's well done but the characters are so unlikable who cares and it runs for about nine months. It does make some money, but it's not a huge hit. You compare it to um, other shows that they did, like By Jupiter uh, or On Your Toes, which ran longer. Pal Joey also never got any radio play at the time because of the lyrics. The lyrics were considered too risque to be put on the radio. And so there were no pop recordings of the score. What ended up happening was in 1950, after Oklahoma opens and becomes a huge hit and launches what is the cast recording, the cast album, and all these shows get cast albums now. Richard Rogers is like, pal Joey really should get a recording. There's no recording of it. So they do a recording of it, allowing some of the songs to also get radio play. It's a huge hit. People start covering, if I could write a book, Bewitched. And from there, there becomes public interest again in the show, which then gives it a revival in 1952, which is a huge hit running almost twice as long as the original. And the rest is history. And we'll get into more of that history later. So now, I didn't know that that recording that like the studio stars they got for that 1950 recording mm-hmm. uh, were Vivian Siegel and Harold Lang. Mm-hmm. That recording's success was the reason that it happened on Broadway with Vivian Siegel and Harold Lang, even though ironically, then they're not on the album of that production because of their. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. There's a whole like problem with the, yeah, the record labels. It's why there's like. It's why there's a Broadway cast album of Call Me Madam with someone yeah. else entirely. And then M- Merman has like the highlights. Rags also is like that with, oh, I mean, there is no, there's just the cast recording with Julia Magenis, but Teresa Stratus only on bootlegs. Yeah, exactly. There's another something like that. Um, I can't remember what, oh, I mean, well, Grand Hotel, the famous stories, you know, it took forever to get into the recording studio because of all the rights issues and who owned what. And then they finally record it. But um, yeah, it's, it is fascinating. Yeah, it, is, it was the 1950 studio recording with Vivian Siegel and Harold Lang. Vivian Siegel reprising her role as Vera Simpson and Harold Lang, who had just come off of Kiss Me Kate, doing those roles. And then, yeah, that success launched the revival, which, as you said, they're not on that recording. But Helen Gallagher and Elaine Stritch are. And for that, we are grateful. Um, so when you were pouring over uh, this show again for this episode... What is something that really stood out to you about uh, either the songs or the book or the show in general? Uh, well, I realized how great Joey's stuff is because I really had had such a, a, a lady, I, as I always have a sort of more lady focused interest in musicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly 
you know, I, I was having just the deepest moment all about Patty when I first got into Pal Joey. And then in the cast were, um, at the, on the Encores production were B.B. Newirth, who I was already a huge fan of, um, uh, as what's her name, Melba, you know, mm -hmm. and um, Vicki Lewis, who I was a fan of from News Radio. And I didn't even, oh no, I do, I didn't know she could sing already because she had done Damn Yankees. And mm -hmm. she was so incredible, like really belting, you know, almost Patty style uh, as uh, Gladys. Um, and even Daisy Prince as, uh, what's her name? Uh, Linda English, which is- I was like the worst It's name. one of the whitest names of all time, totally. Linda English. <laughs> totally. <clears throat> but I mean, I was even a fan of hers from Merrily. So like mm. I, uh, and being Hal Prince's daughter. Um, so- yeah, and, the, and the Follies concert. And the she's Follies concert, yes. Yeah, she's real good in that as the voice of reason when Liz Calloway is having a fucking meltdown. Um, I am young Sally. I am, no, oh. yeah, you know, on that uh, concert, what do you call mm -hmm. it? Uh, you know, the making of video. Yeah. Um, they're both wonderful. But um, uh, so I really, I, I don't think Peter Gallagher stuff like really registered with me at the time, mm. sort of revisiting it for now. And I saw the revival, but you know, as you said, it had issues, but, um, but revisiting it for now, I was like, oh my God, like this Chicago song is as good as like the Judy Garland Chicago song. And like, mm -hmm. you know, just all his stuff. I mean, these are great uh, songs and the title song, you know, I'm mean, speaking of the, of this as a cursor to the Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of, um, you know, musical play drama in song. I mean, it, it you know, it, you can, he you can hear the foreshadowing of like soliloquy and carousel and all that mm -hmm. in, in the title song in Pal Joey, I think. Yeah, I think the title song might be the closest Pal Joey gets to the breakthrough that Oklahoma and those Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals come to because there's um a lot of these songs do kind of speak to the psyche of some of these characters. Like Bewitched is uh you know very much a mo like a moment of introspection on Vera's part, but because of the wit and the and the sophistication of some of the lyrics it does sometimes feel like there's a bit of a distance from the emotion if that makes sense like and bewitch is a lovely song but it is much more sexually charged and like i don't want to use the word cold but vera as a character is someone who has a lot of walls and i feel like even when she's letting her guard down with something like this or what is a man there is a level of um like oh darling about it all you know Whereas I feel like there's a lack of pretense with a lot of the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. And part of that is because a Oscar Hammerstein was such like an earnest motherfucker. And then also those shows tended to be about uh, less sophisticated people. And Sondheim even talks about it. anytime Oscar Hammerstein tried to write about sophisticated people, he just failed miserably, which is ironic because he was like an upper crust person. But Lorenz Hart was just so good at writing uh, Noel Coward-esque, you know, very clever rhymes, uh, inner rhymes and and pop culture references. So something like that title song I like because there's an anger about it. There's sort of a, there's a denial about the truth in it. That's very human. And I think what separates the Joey Looks Into the Future Ballet from like the Out of My Dreams Ballet in Oklahoma. And I, it obviously depends on how you choreograph and what point of view you want to make with that number. But my assumption is that in the forties, when they did that ballet of Joey looks into the future, it was not in uh, an investigation of his psyche so much. It was 
his fantasy sequence of, you know, it's going to be like this and I'm going to have be famous and rich and ble- and have all the girls. And that's how it ends. Harris tweet. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all I need is the girl mixed with the singing in the rain ballet in the middle of the movie. It's all that stuff. I'm independent. I'm no defendant. I'll own a nightclub that's tops. And I'll be in with the cops. What do I care for the skirts? What do I care for the skirts? I'll make them pay till it hurts. Let them put up till it hurts. I'm gonna own a night. But there's also so many songs in this that are very much of the era of musical comedy where you're like, great song doesn't do anything for the plot. Like, one of the great songs of this show is one of the most superfluous, and it is Zip especially the way it's done originally. It is, you mentioned the character of Melba, which B.B. Newworth did at Encores, and Elaine Stritch famously did in 1952. We will get to that story. You better fucking believe, Ben. Um, and all it is is Joey is, you know, getting the nightclub in Act 2. Vera has put up the money. They're about to open. Act two's, you know, getting everything ready. And this Melba character comes in, and she's like, I'm doing a, I've been told to do a story about you. And the original script is, great because joey could not be more misogynistic he's like a female writer what is this bullshit like and he's like trying to charm her and seduce her and she and she clearly is having none of it she's like it's like just tell me your story dude i I need to get down two thousand words and he starts lying to her like he lies to everyone we established early on in the show joey lies about everything and he's not even good at it it speaks more about the characters he's lying to if they believe it or not it's like linda buys his lies immediately because she's an innocent and a bit of a dum-dum but pretty much everyone else calls him out like vera's there's a joke in act two when vera's like asking oh uh where's your dad now and he's like oh daddy's uh on the coast so she goes forget that i asked like <laughs> like this is going nowhere but so he's lying to melba and melba's like great cool awesome he's like lying to her about going to i think dartmouth or princeton or whatever and talking about like the fraternities and then all this other stuff and like this story about a singer and and she's like no like this is all lies dude like i'll write it because you know i've got nothing better to do and it's easier than making something up myself but like you let's be clear this is fake so he goes off and then someone's like, I'm sorry about Joey. She's like, don't worry about him. I've interviewed better people. And then sings Zip, which is about when she interviewed Gypsy Rose Lee. Great song. And when you have, you know, 25-year-old semi-drunk Elaine Stritch doing it, time of your life. But it's not really important to the show at all. No. Well, my pitch is, since nobody knows that her name's Melba anyway, mm-hmm. just make that character Elaine Stritch. And instead of singing Zip, she does the entire Zip section from Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Absolutely, which is... Wouldn't have any less to do with the plot. Not one bit. It will actually, it becomes like skin of our teeth at that point, because then the fourth wall gets broken and it's no longer Pal Joey. It's Elaine Stritch as Melba doing Pal Joey in 1952. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. That's what we're going to do. love Martha Plimpton. Absolutely get Martha Plimpton to do it, uh, which is... The one, one of the few changes they made in the 2008 revival, which is something to also talk about, guys, about how while this show has such a strong legacy and is often beloved, it is mostly for the score and for the fact that this is really the first Broadway musical to have an anti-hero that doesn't change at all. But it has all these ties to musical comedy that 
undermine it because they're you know george abbott was still so tied to we need the comedy song here we need the we need the funny business here we need gladys we have we need a two-page running gag where gladys doesn't understand what lowell's talking about because lowell keeps talking in like metaphors and uh side glances and gladys isn't getting it so every time he's talking about something sort of in opaque references she's taking it literally and it's two pages of this ben two pages of this benjamin this is a half a page at best um i also feel like gladys is so wise to everything for all of act one she's like Joey, we never met, but you met my sister and I know you're full of it. Then also in act two, she's the biggest dumb dumb around. I'm like, what is this bullshit, George Abbott? Yeah. I call bullshit. But so in the 2008 revival, they make Gladys, first of all, they make her a former girlfriend of Joey's who like got an abortion that he abandoned her at. I was like, oh, okay, this is how we're opening the show. Great. <laughs> <laughs> like the moment Martha Plumpton comes on stage, she was like, you left me at the doctor's office all alone. I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> And then she does zip as a performance number, which I think is the smart choice. It is best as a performance number. Uh, but as you said, it should be Martha Plimpton as Gladys, but then it becomes Martha Plimpton as Elaine Stritch as Gladys. And the fourth wall gets broken. I like it very much. Zip. I was reading Schopenhauer last night. Zip. And I think that Zip. I'm an intellectual. I don't like a deep contralto or a man whose voice is alto. Zip. I'm a heterosexual. Zip. Um, we're going all over the place, but I don't fucking care. Uh, I want to talk about Zip a little more in depth, if you, if we may. I have some notes here. Ooh. Zip might have the most pop culture references per line of any song of the 1940s. Mm. And I do have Probably quite top 10 most pop culture reference laden of all time. It's true. It's true. I also, I didn't formally thank you for your South Park bigger, longer and uncut reference earlier. <laughs> I'm, I'm always good with a, with a pop culture reference. Can I have five tickets to Terrence and Philip asses of fire, please? <laughs> no. <laughs> so great. Uh, I'll do an episode about that movie one day, but I do have some young listeners and I love my listeners. I love, I love all of them. Even when they don't agree with me, I still, I still love them like my children. But I do take it upon myself to inform some of them of the things that are not Heather's Be More Chill or Legally Blonde. Or, you know, reminding them that there were Fanny Bryce's before Beanie Feldstein. And so it's important for us to discuss some of these pop culture references in Zip so they can hear it and understand the wit of them all. First of all, there is... Um, I mean, you have to be pretty old to get the pop culture references in Zip without having, like, looked it up. Absolutely. I mean, I'm I mean, pretty good. I'm much older than your uh, Heather's Be More Chill stands in your <laughs> audience. And certainly South Park, Bigger, Lager, Uncut is from my youth. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, like... Uh, what is Lily St. Cyr is not somebody that I would reference on my own. One hundred percent cabina no idea who she was and like i'm pretty good for who i am and every time i've listened to the song it's always like i i know half the references half uh the opening has two different versions there's um reference to pablo picasso and the countess known as defrasso and then there's also the i've interviewed leslie howard i've interviewed noel coward Mm. leslie howard noel coward's a little easier um leslie howard famous movie actor i believe he plays um 
Ashley and Gone with the Wind. That's what, yeah. I, I, was, I was saying it's not Anthony. It's a girl name. Ashley and Gone and with the also, Wind. Also, he's the movie of Pygmalion. I think he was. Um, yes, he's that, Higgins in that. Higgins, yeah. Yeah, and he was also like 20 years old to play Ashley and Gone with the Wind, but that's neither here nor there. I want to talk about a bad makeup job. It's him and Gone with the Wind. I wonder if I rewatch Gone with the Wind now, if I would think he was hot. Um, I mean, he's he's handsome. It's very clearly Clark Gable and Clark Gable only. But it's what keeps from Leslie Howard looking hot, in my opinion, is that it is so much of a like Gloria Swanson, like total wig, heavy makeup. They're like they're pulling back the wrinkles. Um, it, and then you have like Vivian Lee, who's just like stunningly gorgeous and ever so youthful and yeah. naturally so. And you're like, ooh, one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> So the, so we have the Leslie Howard and then we have Noel Coward. Noel Coward, we've talked about on this uh, podcast before, uh, British comedian, writer, performer, composer, director. Uh, one of my favorite lines in Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Stritchy, I have seen the sitcom. It will not get picked up. <laughs> <laughs> but so then we also have the original lyrics, which are uh, Pablo Picasso. Who doesn't know Picasso? And then the Countess known as DeFrasso. Do you know who the Countess Dorothy DeFrasso was? I do not. It's not the Countess Luann, everybody. She is considered a non-professional resident of Hollywood. She was just sort of someone who was very rich, very well connected, and was basically famous for being outrageous. She was like the original housewife of Beverly Hills. Mm. That, that is who DeFrasso was. Was she an actual countess? I think so. I, I, the one thing I found about her never actually confirmed that or not. They just talked about, you know, all the crazy shit she did. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and give her the benefit of the doubt and say she was a countess. All right, then. Yeah, I don't have the papers, but I'll just say it. It's my Linda English moment. I take it at face value, which, <laughs> oh, which I do want to get into the Linda English of it all. Because my, like every time in this show where I'm like, good for you, John O'Hara, for writing like a strong female character like Vera and Melba for calling out so-and-so. Then we got Linda English coming on buying everything hook, line, and sinker. And I'm like, oh, God damn it. Linda English would have joined QAnon. Let's be clear. She would have read all that stuff and taken it immediately. This is a new take. (laughs) This is what we come on here. This is why you wanted to come on the pod, Ben. You wanted these hot takes. Well, I I need to know everyone that's in QAnon on Broadway. I mean, you know. I I don't try. I don't want to know that. (laughs) I I think, God forbid, we find out. Uh, Stravinsky, Russian composer. Walter Lippmann. Do we know who Walter Lippmann is? Was. was I, I just assumed he was a columnist like Walter Winchell. Yes, he, he was um, a columnist. He was a Pulitzer Prize winning writer. He had a column from 1931 to 1950 called Today and Tomorrow, which was considered like required reading by the thinking man of America. Mm. He coined the term stereotype as we know it today. Wow. Yeah. Um, he, yeah, the, it was, the word had sort of a very different meaning. And then he's the one who turned it into what we know. And then he, what did it mean before? I mean, I think it had a French uh, root to it. And I don't know what the exact, what the original wording was, but he, every article that I've read about oh, it, it is like, like when two gentlemen come on either one of your ears. What? <laughs> what? I'm thinking of a French <laughs> definition. <laughs> what? Yes. Oh, yes. The French invented the pearl necklace, but at the time it was called the stereotype. <laughs> when the man stereotypes all over your chest. <laughs> um, yes. And then Walter Lemon's like, love the word. Let's change the meaning. <laughs> God. 
please don't want to take any of this at face value. But yes, that's who Walter Lippmann was in the lyric. Walter Lippmann wasn't brilliant today. Um, then William Soroyan. Playwright. Playwright, yes. Uh, novelist and playwright. He wrote the novel The Human Comedy and then wrote his first play was the Pulitzer winner Time of Your Life, which no one reads or does anymore. But of course, I know Time of Your Life because it was Patti LuPone's Broadway debut. Was it not, really? Not the original production, but uh, but the acting company production in the early 70s. Fun fact, everyone, Patti LuPone is 95 years old. <laughs> yeah, so there is the line, will Soroyan ever write a great play, which is a play on words because his name is William Soroyan, but also it's the question, will he write a great play? And he had just won a Pulitzer and it's, so it's very clear that Lorenz Hart did not care for this Pulitzer Prize winning play. Um, even though oh, see, the, I honestly, thought it was just like um, being like um, contrary. I didn't think it was shade against uh, uh, Soroyan. It, it could just be contrarian for sure. I've known to be a contrarian. Like, aren't all her questions sort of um, like that? Like um, Walter Lippmann wasn't brilliant today. Mm-hmm. Like, like she, like, it's not about, I didn't think it was John O'Hara's like, secret true or, or Lawrence Hart's uh, secret true opinions I thought it was like make to show what an intellectual she is she's like above everything now that you say that that is true because a lot of her thoughts so the the for anyone who's wondering what the hell we're talking about in this song zip and it doesn't really matter because again it has nothing to do with any plot whatsoever plot stops for three minutes while the song happens and Melba's talking about how she interviewed Gypsy Rose Lee who we all know from Gypsy and asks Miss Lee, what do you think while you're doing your strip teases? And it's, here's what I am thinking. And all the things, thoughts that go through her head. And every time she has a thought, zip, she's unzipping another zipper. And you are right. A lot of the things she thinks are contrarian and more elitist. She uh, doesn't care for either Mickey Mouse or Rooney make her sicky. Yeah. She considers Salvador Dali's paintings passe. Yeah. I mean, that really takes the cake, right? Yeah. Like, not even like bad but passe, it's just like yeah. So over. Yeah, she's like, everyone, we're over now. And I'm like, Dolly, I think you were still relatively like in the zeitgeist at the time. So. I mean, like, uh, I mean, there was no gypsy musical. Like, people knew Gypsy Rosalie just because she was like a famous stripper. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was, she was internationally recognized as a celebrity for this. And she really changed the game in terms of striptease. Yeah, there as you're, yeah, no, you're right. There was there was no gypsy musical. Um, Schopenhauer, German philosopher who focused mostly on pessimism. So when she says, I think I was reading Schopenhauer last night and I think Schopenhauer was right, <laughs> it connects. She's like, Yeah, he's right, everything sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Confucius, Lucius, both philosophers, one Chinese, one Roman. She's an intellectual. And then she doesn't like a deep contralto or a man whose voice is alto. Brilliant lyric. Yes. And why is that then? Because she's I'm a heterosexual. Yeah. Gypsy believes in gender norms. Yeah. She she wants her women to sound like women and her men to sound like men. It just shows how shallow Elaine Stritch's probing of the lyric was. Because, like, I mean, it's funny when she says, I thought heterosexual meant gay. Mm-hmm. But, like, but, but it wouldn't make sense if it meant gay. <laughs> Like, if, except if you were just like truly just singing words yeah. for any reason. Well, th- that's sort of the secret about Elaine Stritch. I don't know if we talked about it in the company episode, but like she was not well-read or um, she was smart. She was street smart, but she was not an intellectual person. And that was something that was a very deep 
vulnerability of hers. And so whenever it kind of came into question in a rehearsal room or whatever, she would become like a fucking tiger and just come at you with all claws. Um, but she is one, she was one of those people who were like, you know, you prick her and she falls apart, but she'll be you know, a million uh, different angles because she thought that Mahler's was a ba- pastry shop. You know, she did. She didn't know That's any like, of this stuff. You know, I mean, you don't have to be an intellectual. It's like if you're an actor and you don't understand something, you need to find out. Even if in the rehearsal room, you pretend that you know everything, mm-hmm. like learn about it. I mean, like what what did she think the song was about? that she just didn't have that information. I mean, it's just so like, I mean, maybe it's all, so much of her show is bullshit anyway. Maybe she absolutely understood the lyric and just mm-hmm. like wanted to be funny now, but. I mean, the story she tells with Pal Joey, which we will get to in about 90 seconds when we finish the rest of these references, the story, I don't know how much of it is true because I did do some research on her timeline and it's all wrong. Uh, <laughs> literally all of it is wrong, the timeline. But we'll get into that in a second. Uh, there's something about Mrs. Perkins, which I don't know. Kabbalah, Allah, all, you know, mystic, religious, whatever. Uh, Kabina Zarina. Kabina was a socialite uh, around the same time as Brenda Fraser, just in all the society pages. Brenda Fraser, we know from the I'm Still Here lyric. Serena was a ballet dancer. That only know it as Shirley Temple. Now known as Shirley Temple, yes, because no one laughs. I got through Barbara Walters. Um, yeah, because no one will laugh at Brenda Fraser anymore. <laughs> I, think, I thought was like, why is Brendan Fraser in this song? That's not in the right time period. I think Carol Burnett might be the last recorded version of Brenda Fraser. I don't know if they changed it to Shirley Temple in London at that point. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Zarina's the ballet dancer was once partnered with uh, George Balanchine, but no one knows there. And again, as you said, like uh, Zarina generally considered a great performer. And Gypsy Rosalie says, I don't want to see her. I'm an intellectual. So again, it's a, she's the contrarian. Um, Whistler's Mama, which is uh, the, the painting, Whistler's Mother. Yeah. Or sorry, it's Whistler's Mother, but the painting is Whistler's Mama. Uh, Charlie's That's aunt, the play. Um, Schubert's brother doesn't re- spe- specify which brother. He had three. <laughs> Sally Rand, stripper. I also love that when each chorus ends, it's the question of who the hell is this person? Who's yeah. like coming for her gig? Who the hell is Sally Rand, Lily St. Rear? So were they all strippers? I think now I'm finally understanding the lyric, which in my defense, I never played the role. So it really wasn't my job. But um, now that now time. I get those lines. Yeah. It's like she's just saying like, you know, it's like a drag queen being like, who the fuck is Bianca Del Rio? Exactly. Look um, how smart yeah. I am. I'm too good for Dali. And I'm, you know, like... I'm obviously the best. I love that. Yeah. And these, these, yeah, it's, it's, it is Lily St. Rear, right? I think that is the last one. Mm, um, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, let me look it up. But yeah, it's, it's all these, all the women she ends with, who the hell is um, Sally Rand, Lily St. Rear. These are all uh, other strippers who were big at the time, but they were not doing what she did, which yeah. is to say, you know, they were, they were doing the, what you would consider a stripper to do at that time. I believe. Sally Rand uh, very much like went uh, one of them had a very famous fan dance where like anytime she was about to expose her breasts, a fan would cover it, Um, Mm. which I think is fun. But of course, you know, Gypsy's going, she's not talking about politics while she does it. Who's this flop? I mean, did Gyp- was Gypsy really sophisticated in her? I mean, I know in, in the musical, there's like, I'm a Nick Deasy ass and everything. Like, is that an accurate depiction? 
Um, I mean, I never saw her live, but I do. I, from what I understand, yes, what made her so special were a couple of reasons. You never knew how much she was actually going to take off because it always depended on how she was feeling. She would either go all the way or she would take off a glove or she would take off half of her dress, but not all of it. And while she did it, she would talk to the audience and she would talk about what was going on in the world that day. And she would give her thoughts on a book she just read, uh, which, and, and she was very funny while she did it. So the audience was always engaged, but also, you know, telling the audience, Hey, here's a person up here with thoughts and opinions. I'm not just a piece of meat who you're going to ogle. Um, surprised. I guess it makes sense because of the success of the musical, but I'm yeah. surprised there hasn't been a like, you know, big Hollywood um, biopic. Um, yeah, there should be one. Character. Yeah, I'd like to yeah. see that. That'll be like, you know, fucking uh, Anne Hathaway's next <laughs> next project. Bring it the fuck on. I would see that shit in a heartbeat. Zip. Uh, trying to think, are there anything else here? Sally Rand stripper, Margie Hart stripper, Tuscanini conductor with Jurgen's lotion. Uh, yeah, the, the rest of this is just goddamn, you know, the same pop culture references. Uh, so let's go into the Elaine Stritch story for a second. Ben, want to tell the listeners what Elaine Stritch went through when she did Pal Joey? Certainly. Well, <laughs> Elaine was, um, appearing on Broadway as Ethel Merman's standby in Call Me Madam in mm-hmm. 1951, I guess. Yes. Uh, it had opened in 50, I think. But anyway, um, she was Ethel Merman's standby. And of course, Ethel Merman famously um, never missed a performance. So Elaine never went on, but she was, you know, getting the salary to stand by. And she wound up uh, doing the role on the national tour. Um, but uh, then at that time, there was the Broadway revival of 1952 um, of Pal Joey going on. And uh, Stritch wanted, according to her, this is the story she tells, that she wanted that role. She wanted to play Melba and she knew she could do the fuck out of Zip. Mm-hmm. And um, they offered her the part. And the problem was that um, they were going to be, and she figured she could do it because she could collect both. She figured she could get away with collecting both salaries mm-hmm. because Merman would never miss. So she could technically be standing by for Merman and just check with her at half hour. And as long as Merman was fine, I'm okay, Elaine. She does a mm-hmm. great Ethel Merman impression. She would then go do her number, which is only on late in the second act in Pal Joey. And um, if God forbid Ethel Merman ever missed a performance, then Elaine would have to be out that night mm-hmm. in Pal Joey, but she figured this would all time out. But then they decided, uh, according to Elaine, late in the rehearsal process that they needed to add an out of town tryout in New Haven. And uh, she figured she could still make it work because her song wasn't in the show until the late in the second act of Pal Joey. Mm-hmm. And it's just that one scene that Melba sings. It wasn't the Martha Plimpton fusion. And so uh, she talks about how she had an old boyfriend who had a car and mm-hmm. she told him she missed him. And uh, he became her chauffeur or did mm-hmm. he lend her the car? I'm not sure. And um, she uh, managed to get back and forth to, um, 
to uh, New Haven to mm-hmm. do the role. And matinee days were especially hectic because she had to go and uh, check with Merman. And then she had to get up to New Haven and do her song. And then she had to go back to Manhattan and check with Merman for the evening show and then get back up to New Haven. And then there was the famous blizzard of 51 or whatever it was. She's, in the show, she says the great blizzard of 52. 52. And uh, I guess call me Madame Rand for a long time. And yeah. she um, she uh, got almost missed it and she I feel like I'm not doing it justice now people really need to listen to her tell the harrowing tale of getting off the having to take the train because of the blizzard mm-hmm. and thumbing a ride hitching a ride with a large Italian family so that she could get to the theater and just in the nick of time as her understudy was about to go on and sing the song how she uh wearing her own Dior suit, <laughs> she said to the understudy, I need your shoes. And she clomped on in shoes the wrong size, as she said, Minnie Mouse in a Dior suit. That's, yeah, it's, it's very accurate. The only other detail I want to add is, so the day of the, of this, of this storm, she goes, I, it all worked out perfectly. And the great storm of 52, she goes, uh, the car out of the question. I have to take the train. So I go to Merman early because she always has to check it half hour. Yes. She goes, I'm just like, Ms. Merman, I, I, I just want to know because of the storm, I'm going to actually check, uh, leave early. So it's like, hey, if I check with you a little earlier and Ethel goes, Elaine, would you go to New Haven and sing the fucking song? So there we go. It's, it's, uh, a, it's I'm okay, Elaine. Will you go to New Haven? For Christ's sakes, go to New Haven and sing the, sing fucking, the fucking song. song. Yeah. So the timeline of Call Me Madam and Pal Joey does work out because Call Me Madam opened, I think, at the end of 50 and ran for about a year and a half. Uh, it closed in May of 52. So that all that all tracks By the out. Way, one thing I left out that's important is that what makes this so fabulous in Elaine Stritch at Liberty is not just that she's telling the story so brilliantly, but she splits up the verses of Zip, mm-hmm. which, as we've discussed, in a normal context, the song doesn't really necessarily build other than the fact that maybe she belts a little more on the last note or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But this gives it such a thrilling build because the story gets more and more uh, intense. I mean, the stakes just get higher and the tension rises as she tells the story in between the verses. So by the time she triumphantly is belting out the final verse of Zip, it's like absolutely ecstatic in a way that that song never otherwise could be. Yeah, she gives the story, the song, a story, and that is it's. She was such a brilliant performer and such a brilliant storyteller. It truly doesn't matter the actual facts of what were true and what were not. And I do want to just say my research of the timeline. I am only saying this because I brought it up. I don't. I truly don't care. And I want everyone to go to YouTube and look up Elaine Stritch Zip and watch the eleven minute video because it's worth every goddamn second of it. We'll talk about unreliable narrators. I mean, honestly, like if we start with this technicality, we'd be surprised to learn later the glaring lies. Oh, of so many other things. Absolutely. But the one I I was looking up, I was like, okay, when when were the major snowstorms in New York of the 50s? There, so she says the great blizzard of 52. Pal Joey, the revival of Pal Joey opened in the very first week of January of 52. I think like January 4th or 5th or something. No, in in New York. Like it opened on Broadway like January 4th or 5th in 1952. So the only way that there could have been this story happening was like 
if we're talking like the very first day of January 52, but even then, no, not the case. If the two weeks in New Haven happened, it happened in December. So and then I went, okay, was there a blizzard in December of 51? No, there was not. Uh, nor was there a blizzard in January of 52. November? So I mm? was November possible. <laughs> Maybe. And I, I think I saw. Maybe that they there... did the tryout then took the holidays off before they. They took all of December off so everyone could calm down. No, um, I'm my assumption is that the back and forth, of course, obviously happened. She did do it's documented that she was in both of those shows at the same time. And she did leave Pell Joey after four or five months, because once Call Me Madam closed in May, they had her do it on the road and she took that gig. Yes, um, I did see that. I also saw a fun fact that um, Helen Gallagher's replacement was Nancy Walker. Oh, that's fun. Oh, actually, well, and speaking of Gypsy Rose Lee, do you, we know who the original Gladys Bumps was in the 1940 production of Pal Joey, right? June Havoc, the uh, original, grown, the actual grown-up June. Yep, of Gypsy, Dainty June. Uh, so I do wonder, I mean, I believe as they got older and June did finally have more like Broadway success, their relationship was solid, especially once they kind of like acknowledged our mother was awful and she put pit us against each other. I like you though. Um, but yeah, I'm sure it was not great for her ego to have a whole song in the show that she was in about her sister. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, my assumption is that there probably was no blizzard and it pro- there probably was a day where it was really difficult for Elaine to get to New Haven, but she made it. And all the other details, I don't, I'm not sure if the Italian family was true. Uh, <laughs> I think when that, sh- when the show came out, like a lot of people who had worked with Elaine Stritch throughout her career, like came out of the woodwork to be like, not true, not true, not true, not true. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's one of those classic stories of like, you do what you can to get to the theater show must go on. Um, and you know we've had this conversation now in since COVID of, you know, the mental strain that sometimes can have on a performer of thinking you're not, dedicated enough if you're going on when you're not able to and there's a difference between you know not mentally being able to go on that night or physically able like you are just too sick there's a there's a difference between that and like just doing your darndest to like fight the elements outside of your own body to get there like oh the subway broke down i'm gonna go home it's like no no no. then you take an uber well i can't get an uber okay then you bike there like that kind of stuff as opposed to my leg fell off i but i have to go on anyway it's like no no go to the hospital your leg fell off. especially in elaine's case where she had campaigned to be allowed to do both roles Mm -hmm. she really probably couldn't have something happen that proved her wrong yeah and and she adds the detail in the story that it happened just happened to be opening night in new haven like the critics were coming she yeah. had to be there and it's like yeah, sure yes of course <laughs> all these things happened elaine we totally buy it call us all linda english because we're believing every word you say speaking and also of your drinking never got in the way of your professionalism absolutely never never not once i'm sure you never but went I on never stage overshot the runway <laughs> yep uh, I'm sure the fact that you for quote unquote forgot the lyrics to ladies who lunch first day in Boston had nothing to do with your drinking. No. Um, <laughs> and she was fired from uh, the women just for being disrespectful to um, who was it? March, March champion. champion. Had, somebody crazy. I think it was March champion. Yeah. Yeah. She, she spoke highly of Gloria Swanson, not of March champion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, I'm sure it was just because of that and not because of anything else you did. And I and 
I want everyone to understand Ben and I are speaking this way of Elaine Stritch because we do love her so much. We put in, we put her, we put in the years of love that we yes. get to razz her in this way. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think of her as an old friend. That's why I get it's, it's golden girls friendship, you know? Yeah. It's calling Blanche a, a human mattress because we love her. So. <laughs> or Sophia, what does she call it? Gecko. <laughs> It's so good. Shrimp. So, <laughs> God, I hope only gay men are going to like this episode, Ben. Only gay men are going to like anything that comes out of our mouth. It's not as butch as the rest of your, your, uh, your series. It's a, a notoriously butch uh, podcast, to be sure. Um, speaking of the Linda English of it all, can we talk about this white-ass woman uh, who might be my least favorite, quote-unquote, ingenue of any Golden Age musical? The best thing I can say about her is that in act two, she wises up a little bit to Joey and tells and tells Vera about Gladys's blackmailing scheme, which is very rushed and forced. When I read the script, I was like, oh, this kind of comes out of nowhere and gets concluded very quickly. Like it's to give the show some stakes, but it's not established at all in act one that Gladys is going to be a threat in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just very tacked on. But yeah, Linda warns Vera that she overheard the blackmailing scheme and then she and Vera have the song Take Him which it's a great lyric and I like the melody but I wish there was a bit more not urgency but like maybe a little anger to it 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 feels a little too complacent of a song it's very take it's it's like like resolved zen 20 years later exactly it's yeah it's very much them 20 years after the fact coming back and being like you can have him it's like not in the immediate moment where there's a lot on the line, and Linda like probably cried her eyes out before getting to the apartment anyway. Keep him, for you can be sure of it. He can't keep you. So take my own jalopy. Keep him from falling apart. Take him, but don't ever take him too hard. Thanks, little. Mousey for the present and all that But in this housey I would rather keep a rat oh, I love that Vera's lyric is Thanks little mousey <laughs> Vera just has disdain for everyone She's like all of you suck None of you are at my level Um, But that aside Linda for the most part is just such a wet blanket uh, you know, I also, I mean, I love the detail that she meets Joey outside of a pet store and he just lies about having a dog and she buys all, the, even when she knows more than he does, he's talking about like a Shih Tzu or something like that. And she's like, oh, aren't Shih Tzus like this? And he goes, well, when they're crossbred with this other thing, she's like, oh, okay, I guess you're a man. You must know more. Yeah. And I'm like, girl, you actually knew something. Use it. Mm-hmm. Oh God. So stupid. Project. She's a victim of the patriarchy. She's 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 truly the victim of patriarchal writing, um, which pisses me off because there are other women in Pal Joey that are so much better written. I'm like, couldn't we give Linda some intelligence, please? Well, maybe she. But I think maybe the reason she's so kind of uh, stupid to the point of being unsympathetic mm-hmm. is so that even though Joey's an antihero, we don't hate him because we don't really care what happens to her. Sure. We don't have a lot of respect for her. So yeah. when he just treats treats her cruelly, I suppose, yeah, we don't think of her as a person so much as a wet carrot. Yeah. <laughs> but 
Um, God damn it. I'm so mean. I was uh, reading the script. I was actually surprised Linda's not in it all that much. And she and Joey don't actually ever have a relationship. Like they meet, they, they sing, if I could write a book, which is a lovely song. And then like the rest of the show is sort of like, they keep bumping into each other. And he's always like kind of flirting with her, but they never go on a date. They never have like emotions attached. And I was very surprised to read script every time viewers like, who's that? I'm like, why are you worried about her? You're the one riding him. She's never touched him. Like, yeah, but that's how Vera, you know, she's paying for that ass. She wants it all to herself. But that's the thing. She does have it all to herself. That's the thing that I don't yeah, understand. But, you know, it's like I, she doesn't want anybody sniffing around the cage. It's that is true. That okay. Ooh, one of my favorite moments of, of the original script. And I, when I watched the 2008 bootleg, I was devastated that it wasn't in it. So when Joey meets Vera, she, you know, high society woman, she like makes or breaks everyone in Chicago because her husband owns bread and untapped market. She meets Joey with like two of her like kept boys and he insults her essentially and is like, I know you want me and you'll be back. And she's like, is that what you think? No man tells me what I'm going to do. And she leaves and which ruins Joey. And then he calls her up to say, you know, I made a bet with my boss that you'd show up and you didn't. So now I'm out of a job. Go fuck yourself. To which she then sings, what is a man? Yeah. Um, which question for you actually with what is a man? You know, that section where she goes on the phone and she goes, hello, hello Frank. I have to keep them. Please don't scold. Don't, please don't scold. Um, that's her calling up her like other gentlemen. Right. And, and canceling on them. Right. Yeah. That's what that is. Yeah. Right. That's what I thought. But sometimes I question my own intelligence and insightfulness. And I'm like, I actually might be dumber than I think. No, you're you're as smart as you think. She's Thank pretending you. she has dates. She has uh, uh, required appointments with her husband and stuff to cancel dates with her boyfriends so that she's free to be with Joey. Yes. Hello, Jack. Can't keep the appointment. Have an awful cold. Did you? Hello, Frank. Have to meet my husband. So long. Please don't scold. Hello. Hello. Love. What is a man? Which brings us to my favorite moment in the book, of the libretto, I should say, is when she finally comes back to the club and has like a tete-a-tete with Joey. And then she's like, you're meeting me in the car. He's like, what are we doing? She's like, you know what we're doing. You knew this the night I came in. This is why I came back. You're like, meet me in five minutes. And I was like, I love this woman. And the fact I'm like, I am sure that it shocked people in 1940 that she's like, you know where we're going. You knew where we were going two days ago. Get in the car. And if this were written today, she'd be like, I am going to ride you until you break in half. That's a threat you don't take lightly from Patty LaPone. No, because you know she'll do it. Yeah. She truly is like, it, she's like, this will not be good sex for you. This is only good sex for me. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you are a dildo attached to a man, as far as I'm concerned. You have no emotions, thoughts, or feelings. I, I have a feeling Patty's a good lay. Oh, yeah. No, she's, I'm sure she's very good. But I'm sure that uh, when she only wants it to be for her and she doesn't care about you, she knows how to do that as well. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt, I, I feel like she played really well. Um, Vera's like desire for Joey, you know, in yeah. a way that made me think he had a good time too. Oh yeah, I'm sure that it was good for both of them. Uh, and the I, the interesting thing about this relationship is this. I'm sure this was like the first female to male May December romance mm. um, 
done on stage, certainly in a musical comedy. What's so fascinating to me is like, as the years go on, and this speaks more towards how we as a society have gotten better about ageism. We're still not totally there, but we've gotten a lot better. Vera is supposed to be in her late thirties. Joey's supposed to be like 25, 26. Yeah. And as it's, as more productions have happened, it's become like Joey mostly has stayed the same age and Vera just gets older. Yeah. Yeah. And I do love that. I love that we are acknowledging that women over the age of 40 are sexually uh, viable and, and have needs. Uh, but I do find it funny. Like, or, yes. or, or we could look at it as, you know, well, what's the difference between a 36 year old woman and a 60 year old stalker Channing might as well be the same to us men. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I always have this conflict though with like musicals. It's like, you know, people that say like, I mean, you know, Mame, Angela was like 38 or whatever, like mm-hmm. when she opened in Mame and I always want it to be like, you know, the oldest woman alive, you know? Yeah. I have no interest in women under 50. <laughs> that's the, that's so funny to me because that is such an accurate statement of such gay culture. Like gay men, there's, we love our like pop thieves and whatnot, but like when a, when a dame gets over 50 and still is at it. We just like, not only have all the respect for her, we're like, I will see anything you do till I die. Yeah. Yeah. What would it be Arthur Vera Simpson be like? I wonder. <laughs> well, down the octave. Down the octave. Uh, I, I think she would probably be, the thing about B. Arthur though is like, I don't know. I don't know if she would have the sexuality, you know? Like, sure. um, like, and you know that, I mean, at least, from like, I I haven't watched enough of Maude, but like from like Golden Girls, like her her interest in men always seems sort of like pathetic. Like you don't see her as like someone that's like fierce in their own like prowess, mm-hmm. you know. And that that's I think part of what you need in Vera. That's what I think made Patty so great, even what when people had other complaints, uh, or or they I mean she got good reviews, but yeah. when people have other reasons why they say she wouldn't be the ideal type for Vera. Um, you know, I, I I wish maybe I should look for it. I haven't really looked around, but I wonder if there are bootlegs. Maybe you know of the um, the first incarnation of the Richard Greenberg adaptation that they did with Donna Murphy as Vera and mm-hmm. Carly Carmelo as Gladys. Um, and then they to- did a and then they did a workshop with Bernadette, I believe, as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I think um, and Leslie I know Kritzer played Gladys in that. Version. Oh, that would have been a. F- I would have loved to see Leslie Kritzer's Gladys. Totally. Um, uh, Bernadette as Vera, I'm not so sure about, but Donna, um, I would love to see that. Bernadette, I'm not sure if Bernadette has the like viperish quality that Vera yeah. requires, because Vera does have her defense. De- Vera's defense mechanism is her money, her intelligence, and her sexuality. Yeah. Uh, and they're all things that she likes about herself, but she does use them as weapons against other people because so many of the people she surrounds herself with are first, no one's as rich as she is. That's just a fact. But a lot of, she makes sure to be around men who are not nearly as smart as she is. And she uses that always sort of against them. Um, Yeah, I don't don't think Bernadette would be able to have that quality to her. It would be a little more uh, raw, I guess. I don't know. Every time I think of Bernadette- sexuality has come to me. And, you know, the Patty sexuality is like, try to resist me, grab, you said it, she's a viper. I mean, it's, I'm reaching out and pulling you in. And Bernadette's is like, you know, I'm just over here. Like, what, Mm -hmm. this old ass? You know? (laughs) This old ass. I'm 
I'm gonna start using that as a way to do like backdoor bragging, literally backdoor bragging. It's like, <laughs> oh, what this old ass? I, mean, I always forget because every time my, I mean, it's crazy. My immediate thoughts of Bernadette are like her crying her eyes out on Sunday and whatnot. Like that's where my yeah. my brain goes to, yeah. and I always forget about you know. Dames at Sea, and then more importantly, her and Cinderella, where like she is funny and voluptuous and booby. Yes, and she's fabulous in Cinderella. But but you Cinderella isn't it? It's she's sexy, but, but she's it's a comedic sexy. sexy. It's not yeah. a dangerous sexy. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, she did prove though she and also I remember her on Ugly Betty. She can play very well the like haughty, sort of bitchy, you know. Yeah. You know who would be a good Vera? I think Vanessa Williams. Yes. After all the roles that they miscast her in, she actually would be fabulous as Vera. Absolutely. Well, that'll go into our final questionnaire. Uh, but yes, I, first of all, the most accurate statement of the century. I love her very dearly. She's a very specific kind of talent in the same way that great divas are. Yeah. And she just constantly gets miscast. Um, well, in you... theater. I mean, Vanessa Williams on Ugly Betty is the greatest TV villainess since Joan Collins on Dynasty. I mean, absolutely. And I, people don't really talk about Desperate Housewives anymore. And she was only on a couple of seasons, but she was equally brilliant on that. But then Broadway just keeps miscasting her. And then all these Broadway queens who don't really know her TV stuff shit on her. Like she has no value because they've seen her just be wrong, wrong, wrong. I mean, she would have been so good at, not that we didn't have great Phyllis in Jan Maxwell, but Vanessa Williams would have been a sensational Phyllis in Follies. Absolutely. She, she would have been. Desiree in Night Music. But instead, yeah. we get her in these like belter roles that she cannot do. No, well, because she is a lounge singer type of uh, vocalist. You know, it's a very smooth sound, but it's not a wide variety of range. Yeah, no, it's like and she's also there. not a ham. Like her comedy in Ugly Betty came yeah. from the camp of it all, but it was, she wasn't hamming yeah. it up when they like Bernadette hams up at Cinderella. So like seeing her in Anyone Can Whistle, yeah, seeing her in Anyone Can Whistle, Carnegie Hall was bad. Yeah, well done. Wait, wait, you were saying something and I, I kept talking about you, but I was interrupting you. <laughs> uh, compliment me again. Compliment me. I said it's a great distinction between Cam and Ham. Yeah. Ham and Camp. Absolutely. Seen a lot. I mean a lot. But now I like sweet 17 a lot. I really would love to have seen Donna's Vera. Yeah, I think Donna would have been a lovely Vera. I I quite enjoyed Stockard in that video that I watched. Um, she doesn't sing it great, but I like. I thought she did the high society uh, ness of Vera quite well. I I didn't enjoy her. I mean, besides the singing being terrible, like she um, she's she's more believable as high society than Patty is. But mm -hmm. she didn't have the comedy. She didn't have. She didn't have those double entendres. That that thing of sort of insulting Joey without him even realizing it. Like it, that sort of fell flat. I mean, that production was bad anyway. Yeah, but, that, I mean, part of that is also the book. Richard Richard Greenbrook took out a lot of Vera's amazing one liners, especially yeah. in that final scene when she says goodbye. Like yeah, uh, yeah. the the original book of Pal Joey is rather cold. There's not room for a lot of emotion, and that's something that I think in. Uh, as more productions are coming about. And we now have this new revival supposedly in the works with um, Tony Goldwyn directing and Richard Legravene is writing the libretto. People try to find like, I don't know if a heartbeat is the right word. Although the last revival yeah. tried to find a heartbeat, but like they try to find a little more hot blooded yeah. uh, passion in there. And the show is a more cold, sophisticated yeah. kind of show. And that's where it's uh, 
quality comes from. And so that final scene with Vera, when she says goodbye, it's not like two lovers parting of the ways and like a teary eyed, angry yeah. stuff. She's like, she is over Joey. She says he's more trouble than he's worth. Yeah. And she like everything she says to him is just, you know, she's always three steps ahead of everyone else mentally. So she knows exactly the right thing to say to cut you down to size because she's just operating on a different level. I also love when she does call the commissioner after being blackmailed and she basically is like, it's happened again. I'm being blackmailed again because yeah. Yeah, she's like, this, this has happened to her before. She keeps screwing younger guys and someone finds out and they keep threatening to tell her husband. And she's like, well, got to fix it again. The thing about it though is, I mean, it's a cynical view of romance and love, but I can sort of relate in a way. I mean, it's like, you know, I think that Vera does fall with her whole heart in the moment. It's just that she's old enough and wise enough to know that when this one ends, the another one will come along. I, I think Vera probably does cry over Joey. It's just that she also knows that in two months or a year and a half or whenever it is, she'll be more in love than she's ever been with the latest handsome, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it's all calculated, but yeah. I, but again, you know, it's those walls. So we don't ever really get to see a lot of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What is your favorite song in the show? May I ask? Um, you know, uh, that's a good question. I really do. Uh, God. I, it's somewhere between like what is a man or zip mm. or um, uh, I mean, it's like, I want to say the thing about, it's hard for me with the Vera stuff because like Bewitched and What is a Man in the Patty versions, I love them so much, but I don't feel that way about them when other people sing them. I don't even feel that way about them when Patty sings them like, I don't even like Patty's vocal on the album as much as I liked it in the theater. Like the yeah. way her vibrato kicked in resonating live at City Center on those big notes in Bewitched is my favorite version of Bewitched. But when Patty sings it on the album or in her concerts, I'm like, yeah. And then when other people sing like, you know, I mean, of course, Ella Fitzgerald does arguably like a definitive Bewitched. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, it's just another Rogers and Hart song. It's not my favorite Rogers and Hart song. Um, at that point, I guess maybe I'd even like, I could write a book better, you know? And it's mm -hmm. the same thing with Zip. It's like, yeah, when Elaine does it in At Liberty, when she's belting out that final verse after everything she's gone through and the G Giordano's and everything, I'm like, God, this is the greatest song. This is like better than Rainbow High. But like <laughs> when someone's just singing it by itself, it doesn't have that, that, feeling so then i'm like maybe i like chicago the best i don't know there's a great big i mean all the performance songs in this show i think are great and yeah i think they do actually are the are they're the most exciting ones out of context of the show i think because they're performance songs so there's an energy about them that's really yeah. great it's like you mustn't kick it around i think is such a bop i love um What's it called? That terrific rainbow. Yes. Well, especially the way Vicky Lewis sings it. Vicky Lewis and Helen Gallagher. Helen Gallagher. I would take like take a moment, please, if I may, to yeah. recognize Helen Gallagher. Yes. Great. Great. Today she is all but forgotten in the younger generation, even mm -hmm. though she's one of the great belter dancer all around. Gals one of the, of yeah, the one of the best triple threats Broadway has ever known. Yeah. And a two-time Tony winner at that. Yeah. Uh, and this was the show that 
this so what's interesting about pal joey is when this when the 1952 revival happened harold lang was like known from kiss me kate i wouldn't say he was famous but you know he was one of those broadway people in the community where it's like yeah you know he was in a big hit he had a big role you know let's see what the next thing he does is and after the studio recording of pal joey it's like well clearly this is going to launch him like the original helps gene kelly and vivian siegel you know coming back to do the show again and everyone's like oh she's even more right for the role now and she's going to be amazing and they both got good notices but the two people who walked away with the show were elaine stritch doing zip and helen gallagher as gladys because people don't give a fuck about Sopranos. I mean, I don't know how many times this has to be relearned. Mm. And I'm I mean, sorry. I mean, like, I don't get it with like Vivian Siegel, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, m- maybe she was so just brilliant and scintillating in the role to see her and watch her do the book and everything. But I listened to her sing those songs and I'm just not into it. I mean, it's like, even for a soprano, it's not, it's, you know, there's no there's such a lightness to her voice it's it's a it's a very 1930s 40s singing voice where it's a lot of trill it's not unpleasant but it's like kind of thin it's she hits all the notes and everything like it's very gertrude lawrence to me where it's like i must i'm i I guess i just have to sing her live nicer voice than gertrude lawrence's voice and to be fair to gertrude lawrence king and i it's like her she's about to die so she's not the best of voice true true but like um yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, actually I bought on eBay this um, program for a production from Long Beach Civic Light Opera in like 1991, um, where Elaine recreated Melba and uh, Dixie Carter was Vera. Interesting. And Dixie Carter did Melba on Broadway in a 70s yes. revival. Yes, yes. Um, with, back to Patty, Vivica Linfers as... Vera, who had a re- long arc recurring on Life Goes On. <laughs> it all connects. It's okay. One big web. Um, uh, I sent that to Patty, by the way. She didn't know that Vivica could even sing. Um, I guess she didn't do too much homework about previous productions of Pal Joey. Um, <laughs> but uh, but like Dixie Carter is someone that I think of as having, having had that kind of 1930s-esque, like, you know, it, considering how much she loved Broadway and how much she loved singing and how much she did cabaret and what a big star she became on TV, Dixie really didn't do a lot of Broadway. And I think it makes sense because the era of Broadway that she was around for was really about, you know, the post Streisand, mm-hmm. you know, it really wasn't about that kind of voice anymore. Um, I mean, I think really the only thing she did was that replacement gig in Thoroughly Modern Millie. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's it. And that's such a character, you know, not, you know, uh, whatever. But um, but I'm, I would be so curious to see Dixie Carter because I feel like she probably would have been great in that role. Mm. And um, I probably would have liked her singing more than Vivian Siegel's. Probably, yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's not that strenuous of a score. And I think it's this, Pal Joey is a show that requires a cast filled with personality and everyone has to, you know, bring all of that to the table. And then you can just adapt keys to everyone's voices so that way they can shine brightest. So, you know, all the Patty uh, Vera stuff, they, they alter the keys for her so she could sell them in the way that she does. Yeah. Um, and I and I prefer how she sings it to how Vivian Se- uh, Siegel sings it uh, or, you know, how whoever dubbed Rita Hayworth in the movie did it. Yeah. Uh, there's 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 a sexuality to Pal Joey that I think needs to kind of take precedent over the sophistication in yes. a way. 
Right. I mean, that's a great argument for Patty because some people feel she doesn't hold up the sophistication end of it, mm-hmm. you know, but she certainly has the sexuality. I guess I'm just really curious. I'm trying to think of like who would be my ideal. Like, I, I wonder if I saw a, a soprano singer whose voice I love mm. who also had that, like, is it a like could Laura Benanti do this role someday? Like, is that what I'm thinking? Like, I mean, she's technically in the right age I know, for it. Like, I, I know, I know, I know, I know what you mean. I think, like I think Benanti could do it. Um, I would like to see what Kate Bolton could do with it. I think she would be an interesting kind of era. Um, there's, it's so interesting that Hello Dolly is the last time I saw Baldwin on stage because I've always found that there's. And I really don't mean this negatively. Usually I mean this in a negative way, but with her, I mean, it as positive. There is a coldness to Kate Baldwin sometimes just like yeah. in how still she can be on stage. Yeah. And I would love to see her. Like I just, whenever I think of who I would like to see as Vera, my image is them at a cafe, at a table at this nightclub with their leg crossed, staring Joey down yeah. and just, you know, what comes out of their mouth. And, and I always think to myself, okay, who's got a stare that I, that I can't decipher. Yeah. And, I think Benanti could do it if she had a director that was willing to edit her uh, because I think she's such a genius, but she doesn't always get directors who are like, okay, keep that and not that. She tends to do both of the things. Does that make sense? I guess I can see that. I just feel like with Benanti, there's like this like hot sexuality coming from inside. And I I don't, with Kate Baldwin, like I feel that there's like a primness, you know, like I, I think it's what made her so great in Hello, Dolly is like, you know, you could see her as this like, you know, hat shop matron, you know, who, you know, and and you feel like she's actually kind of scandalized by being sort of ruined in front of Horace Vandegelder by this like untoward situation, you know, as opposed to, you know, I, 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 I don't think she has that like, um, that kind of like dripping grit, you know. I want to give all of these women the opportunity to prove us wrong is basically, yeah, I think, yeah. what we're trying to say. Well, I would I love to see Benanti prove you wrong and Baldwin prove you wrong. To begin with, you know, it's a hard role to cast, to be, to yeah. be honest. And I, do you not? Are you not like really? I mean, she's. I they sh- even if we wanted her, they wouldn't cast her at this age anymore, anyway. But are you not um, in, enticed by the idea of Donna? I am enticed by Donna. I think Donna. 10 years ago would have been a really awesome choice. Uh, I do think now having also seen her in Dolly there, her voice is a little yeah, yeah. drawn out a bit, but I, I, I'm a Donna fan, uh, but similar to again, Patty and um, Vanessa, you know, she, I don't, I don't find Donna to be the chameleon that she's been touted to be. I think she does all styles of entertainment. Well, like comedy, drama, all that. But I don't think she's the way you know, people have described her to me is like a musical theater Meryl Streep. Like she can right. do any style, any genre, any type of role. I'm like she can do any genre of writing, but I don't think she can do every style of music, nor do I think she can play every kind of role there is. Um, but well, I do think she can do Joey really ago, well. Even 10 years ago, she wouldn't have. She would. I guess I'm just dying. If someone told me they had a video of that production from Boston, mm-hmm. I would like give my like right nut to like get that. Is that not your feeling? Wait, the, what production in Boston? Because the Richard Greenberg adaptation or an earlier version of the Richard Greenberg adaptation was done at the Huntington Theater in Boston in like the, I'm not sure when, I think the 90s maybe, with Donna as Vera and Carolee Carmelo as Gladys. 
Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that they had done a workshop. I didn't know that there was an actual it, production. They might have also done a workshop at some point, but okay. that was an actual production, yeah. Yo, yes, no, I would love to see the footage of that. I think Donna at the end of the 90s would have been a perfect Vera. I'm thinking of her like in center stage right now where she wants a clean double. And I yeah. think of that face and I'm like, yes, yeah. I would love to see that. Yeah. Ah, uh, dreams, dreams. You know who I would love to have seen be Gladys in like the late 80s is Deborah Monk. I think of her doing Everybody's Girl in Steel Pier and I'm like 10 years earlier, that woman I think would have had the best time on stage. Totally, totally. I love yeah. Deborah Monk so much. I'm still a little burned by her failure uh, in the 1995 company revival. So sure. I'm not, I, as much as I love her doing Everybody's Girl, I'm loath to go handing out uh, roles to her, but I, but I, I sympathize. Yes. I, I, sometimes, sometimes to hit glorious highs, you will hit terrible lows because you take the big swings. And I I don't know if I can think of any musical theater actress that has batted a thousand and, but I don't ever blame them for their failures. I will blame either bad material, bad direction, or just a role that doesn't fit them. That yeah, they tried and it doesn't Sometimes do. they should have turned down the role that didn't fit them. Sure. Yes, Ben. But if they, they should. win a Tony for it, I'm still right. So, listen, there have been many a Tony winning person in their Tony winning roles. When I went, good for you. It's on the books now that you won a Tony for this. But I know, and you and I both know. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Yeah, it's like Trump being president. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to equate some of the Tony winners that whose performances I disliked to Trump as president. But yes, it, it is in principle the same element and on paper is there it is there on paper um yeah so okay let's let's get into our final elements of this uh any final thoughts on the text of pal joey on the material any song that we didn't mention that you're like i want to just briefly point out no i think we we covered it all okay in our little den of iniquity any thoughts on her yeah, I do love that song. Oh, I want to say one thing about Bewitched is just that there's like, I've never heard of a song with so many freaking verses. So many verses, which, so the story goes with that. Uh, they were out of town and uh, Vivian Siegel's like, it didn't stop the show out of town. We like thought it was just a whatever song. And so Larry didn't write any other verses because there were no calls for encores. She goes, and then I do it in New York. And on opening night, I'm being called for encores. And we're like, we, don't know what to do and she's like on the fly i remember a verse we cut in rehearsal and no, an alternate lyric that uh larry ended up rewriting in rehearsals and she's like i turned to the conductor i'm like we do one extra verse with the old lyric and after that larry like wrote me three more verses i'm like that's why bewitched is so long because vivian siegel on opening night was being asked for encores like it'll happen again surely and it never did um but that's why there's so many verses to that amazing and, know, we, and the reprise. I mean, it's just a lot. It's, it is a lot. But, and I mean, how many, I think the ultimate question is how many references to Joey's penis can Larry Hart make? And the answer is the, the limit does not exist. <laughs> he can write so many. Horizontally, he's had his best trousers that cling to him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love all of the Gladys stuff. I love all the performance stuff. That terrific rainbow is good. Mustn't kick it around. Gladys, I think, is really the secret weapon role of that show. Uh, and Helen Gallagher, guys, you can listen to her on the Broadway cast recording of it, and she's great. She's the original, I think, Nikki in Sweet Charity. Yeah, and she, which she sounds absolutely awesome in one of her second 20 for No No Nanette. 
just a great triple threat. And I don't think there are many videos of her on YouTube performing. I think she does the no- a no that Tony performance. But other than that, there might not be any other footage of her dancing. Yeah. Well, she became, I guess, a big soap star, which is why she didn't do Broadway for years and years and years. Yeah. And then she sadly passed rather young. But that's, it's sad, but she, there are, cast albums we can listen to and it's all well and good in the hood uh and didn't, did she replace um jane cannell in mame or maybe is it jane cannell yeah i think she replaced jane cannell in mame that's not, that honestly sounds right that tracks uh i don't i don't know for sure so i'm going to uh turn to you on that and say that you are correct um yeah this is truly the the first show in the musical theater canon that became bigger after um, most shows at this time. And, and honestly, up until like, I would say like the seventies shows did not become big unless they were big the first time around. Um, and so this is the first instance where a show was okay. And then gets much more uh, successful later on. I mean, the movie version happened at the end of the 50s because of the studio recording and then the revival being so successful. I'm like, oh, there's money to be found here. Because the, like, the, the show was optioned for a movie in the 40s and they never did it, even when Gene Kelly became a huge star. They're like, yeah, he's he's not big enough to save this like cult show that no one knows that well. That's and then shame. it became, yeah, it is a shame. They had and, done it with him and like Judy Garland. Would mm. Judy have been Linda or Gladys? Vera. What? It, oh, like at the end of the 50s, if they had done it with Judy? Well, no, in the 40s, even. I mean, they always treated her like an old hag, you know? <laughs> I That's okay. Fine, fine. I mean, honestly, I would prefer a Judy Gladys and an Angela Lansbury Vera in the 40s, just like full on Harvey Girls also reunion. Cast, cast years above her own age. Yes, but at least Angela, like, looked 40 at the age of 20. Like, Judy never looked 40. They just kept on yeah. telling her she was fat and ugly. And it's like, yeah. hey, girl, that's... come on. Um, yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we had a revival in the 70s that went nowhere. We had the 2008 production. We had this new workshop coming. We had the Encores production. And so many of these songs have become classiques. Uh, okay. So I have three major questions for you, Ben, uh, in regards, regards to Pal Joey. Number one. Do you think this show is under, over, or estimated? Properly estimated. Um, uh, I guess it's hard to say because it's, I think in some ways it's underestimated because I think people would enjoy this show more than they think they would. Mm-hmm. But I think people also overestimate it because I think people think it was a big hit. Yeah. Like, I think people think of it kind of like anything goes or something like it's like a big classic that ran for years and years and like just isn't that good. And I think it's actually better than people think, but less successful than people think. Um, interesting. I think that the score is now properly estimated because it is a it's such wonderful songs. I think. I personally think because of the show's reputation now, the actual original show is a little overestimated only because its legacy is so huge of, you know, how it helped kickstart the anti-hero musical and all this other stuff. And you read the script and it's not quite as deep as we expect it to be. Um, and I think part of that is the George Abbott revisions, which I cannot tell you necessarily which are which. I am positive, though. 
I will stand by that that act two like running gag that goes on for two pages of Gladys not getting the plot. Yeah. I'm like, that's absolutely George Abbott. 100% yeah. that's George Abbott. Um, he kept trying to put that in a musical comedy. Finally, there was nobody in the room to stop him. Um, <laughs> I I wonder if there's like a like at some library somewhere if there's like a folio of like John O'Hara's original draft. Maybe. I mean, I think I maybe there it might be there. Um, I think the other thing about the show- When I saw it at Encores, it was, the book was adapted by David Ives. Right. And then Richard Greenberg did the one that they did with Donna and then that they did on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if that was two different scripts or not. And then, and now you said that- um, Richard LeGravenez is doing a new yeah. one. Um, so, I mean, at some point, somebody's doing some research. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I would love to know what they find because- I think the other thing with this show is, while the impact is huge, it where it then I think gets underestimated is because three years after this, Richard Rogers teams up with Oscar Hammerstein and does Oklahoma, which really like yeah. changes the game forever. And th- there needs to be historical context to all the things that Pal Joey did that were so vital to American theater. And the reason why it doesn't all hold up is because the, what it was going for was what was acceptable at the time for musical theater writing. If Pal Joey had been adapted five years later, I think it would be a very different kind of show. But even so, it's like if you compare it to other Rogers and Hart shows, it's so much more interesting, you know? Oh, absolutely. I mean, what is there even a single Rogers and Hart show that's like, like as good as Pal Joey? I think the closest you could come to would be on your toes but the truth is that on your toes this book is a mess um babes in arms has a more coherent plot but it's just kind of dull yeah um, I mean, it's like a, isn't it like a superficial rogers and hart version of like an oklahoma type story babes in arms yeah i mean it's the it's literally kids put on a show uh oh right like, yeah it's, it's a bunch of kids put on a show and then there's a character of like an old chorus girl who's there to like supervise it's like I used to be famous, and they're like, <laughs> "Help us with the show." But I mean, all most of the Rogers and Hart shows, We're like Boys from Syracuse, I guess, like you know, in a different yeah, Boys from Syracuse, yeah, that might get a pass because it's based off of comedy of error, so there is a literal plot. But also, I haven't read the libretto in years, so I don't remember like how much it follows it and how much of it is like modern slang. I think the other thing with Pal Joey that should be noted is that the dialogue in it is very close to real slang of the time. So it does have a sense of realism about it that I think a lot of musical comedies didn't, where it was always heightened. And while it's not, it's, and, and it's sort of caught in between the Oklahomas and like the princess musicals where you have Oklahoma, where like every song has to be, be, be something about character or plot. And then the princess musicals where it's like, Hey Ben, what day is it today? It's Tuesday. It's Tuesday song ends okay moving on with the plot now um it's sort of halfway between those worlds and i think it's actually balances it quite nicely uh but again i do think if it were written five years later after oklahoma there would there would be a slightly more shrewd view on what songs are included when so like um plant you now dig you later like probably wouldn't be in the show if it were written in 1945 or 1946 uh or i mean they probably would if, if George Abbott hadn't been directing it and it was, you know, like a Hal Prince person, Zip would be cut. Uh, Hal Prince would be like, what does that have to do with anything? Yeah. Yeah. But Rogers like learned from Pal Joey sort of how he wanted to write shows forever, which was he said, 
uh, he wants to res- he has respect for the audience and its capacity to enjoy the best, a firm reliance on theater craftsmanship and a joy in musical theater and faith that more serious and interesting works will come from it, mm-hmm. uh, which I think you can see with his work on Pal Joey, that that is where those are the building blocks he is taking Ooh, towards. Who choreographed uh, the original Pal Joey? I don't know. Let me look it up. Although fun fact, Stanley Donnan, the film director who would work with Gene Kelly and a bunch of other stuff was in the ensemble. So that's a fun story. I also wonder like if like the Richard Rogers experiences with Oklahoma and Carousel and everything impacted the 52 revival of Pal Joey. Uh, it might've, it, uh, maybe even like sort of how they, uh, yeah, like how they put on the show, if, uh, the text wasn't all that changed. Although I do know in 52, they altered the ending because usually Joey ends the show alone. Um, you know, penniless and lies to Linda about, oh, I have, I'm going out of town for a Broadway show. And Linda takes him to dinner at her sister's. And then she's like, okay, well, best of luck. And then he's alone on stage. He's like, I'll make it. But in 1952, in that revival, uh, he ends up running after her in the end. So you don't, they don't like get together together, but it's implied like there's hope for him yet. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, Originally choreographed by... (laughs) <laughs> Robert Alton. Robert Alton choreographed the original production of Pal Joey. I was hoping you were going to say Agnes DeMille and blow my mind. Oh, God. What if? What if I was like, oh, what? It's so crazy. A young Andy Blankenbuehler choreographed the original <laughs> Pal Joey. Who'd have thunk? It was actually Matt Rish. <laughs> oh, my God. Matt Rish. Okay. Next question The Missing Link. Is there something missing in the show that you think would give it even greater success? Yeah, a third tune for Vera. Absolutely. Um, I think what's missing is uh, killing off Linda English in Act 2. Just throw her to the sharks, literally. I have no time for her. Somebody's got to be taking the, the bullet. And then last one is just uh, cast away. And we talked about it with Vera, but is there anyone here you're dying to see in this show? Oh. Um, God. Um... Wow. Like, I, I I would love to see Nancy Anderson somewhere in this cast. I mean, mm. she's just so good at that old timey talk and she can dance and she can belt and she's so funny and she's got the soprano range. And I just think like she really, um, she could do like a one woman pal Joey. Um, I see it. Uh, I don't know. Like, is there, like, is there somebody that is like an obvious choice for for Joey? Like, not not for me. I would like to see someone kind of come out of nowhere with that role. That's a role. It's so specific. What's needed, and I can't think of anyone established right now who can do all of it. So I would like to see who's out there that we haven't discovered yet. Yeah. Um, similar to like, you know, how I feel about funny girl, you know, you don't announce you're doing funny girl and then look for a fanny. You find someone who just has to be fanny because they have all the right requirements and then do the show for them. Uh, or just cast your sister. Or yeah, sister, daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my daughter. I she ain't Fanny Bryce. She ain't Fanny Bryce. By the time this comes out, I will have seen it. So I can tell you definitively. But as of right now, I, I it'll be 10 days till I see that production. Well, I stand by I stand by the Vanessa Williams of it all for Vera. Yeah. Uh, bef- back in her shuffle along days before she became a Tony winning Broadway star, Adrian Warren, I would have loved to have seen as Gladys. I think she would mm. nail all the Gladys stuff. Mm. Uh, 
yeah, that's all I got for that. Um, yeah, otherwise, I don't know. Write in, guys. Tell us who you want for pal Joey. Uh, ben, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. You're delightful. Thanks for having me. Uh, where can people find you if you want them to find you? Um, I prefer they don't. No, I'm just kidding. Please <laughs> find me. Uh, I'm just Ben Rimmelauer on all socials. Mm-hmm. Anything coming up that people can tune into for you? Well, um, we are launching at the beginning of June the Cast Offs podcast. Uh, so uh, people can still see me and Daniel Nolan live every Monday at eight at Club Coming. But then starting in June on Broadway Podcast Network, we will be um, putting out the uh, Cast Offs podcast. Very exciting stuff. If you want to find me, I'm on Instagram at Matt Coplick. That is my only social media. I don't I do, I will not be doing any others there will be no TikToks there will be no Twitters don't ask don't question uh I want I have a couple of things of business I have to get through before we close out today one if you like this podcast rate review subscribe follow we got a new review in the interim between story hour and underestimated that I want to read out real quickly because whenever I get a new review I like to shout it out cue the light in the piazza overture music five stars loving this pod is not a choice it's who I am <laughs> Matt is really doing something extraordinary here. He's been dissecting show by show some of the composers and trends that have shaped musical theater. Sondheim, Tesori, Brits, with humor, sophistication, and panache. He's getting through to something new, something of his own. And it's a hit. It's a hit. It's a palpable hit. Leave him. Leave him. How could you leave him after one listen? Must be impossible. Samantha, how dare you with this review? It's all the things I love. You just forgot to include smile in your references, but I forgive you because we have we didn't cover underestimated yet when you wrote this review. Otherwise, it's a perfect review. Thank you so much. Uh, join us next week, everyone, when we cover the next show in underestimated, another show that uh, actually had less success the first time around as Pal Joey, but has maybe had more success than Pal Joey after the fact. I am talking about Candide. Mm, yes, Candide, Candide. Uh, I also have an exciting announcement about the podcast and that I will reveal in the next episode. So uh, stay tuned for it. Um, you know, very exciting. That said, Ben, as you know, we close out with the diva. I think we should close out with Miss Helen Gallagher today because we've done Stritchy, we've done Patty. Haven't done Stockard. I don't think I will. And there's no professional recording of Martha Plimpton singing. So I think it's got to be Miss Helen Gallagher. What do you say? I agree. And until the day Martha Plimpton finally uh, releases some some great recordings, you know, she could do she could do some musicals. I'm, I'm, I'm on the Martha Plimpton musical train for sure. As am I, I would say that's the big thing that we got out of that 2008 revival is we all went Martha Plimpton in musicals now. Yes, exactly. So we love it. We love to see it. So we'll see you guys next week uh, for Candide and for the exciting announcement. And yeah, have a great week, everyone. Take us away, Helen. Bye. Too many rings around. Rosie will never get Rosie a ring. Too many bows when she should have one. You know we'll never bring her a ring around her finger. There may be safety in
Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.